they recruited some healthy African-American adults and some healthy African adults living in rural South Africa. When they did a colonoscopy on the Americans, they found that almost half of them already had precancerous bowel polyps, which needed to be removed. When they did a colonoscopy on the rural Africans, they didn't find a single precancerous adenoma, not one. They did a food swap for two weeks to see what effect will changing food have on these individuals' colorectal cancer risk profile. And in just two weeks, these populations had flipped their risk profiles. So now the Americans scored a low colorectal cancer risk profile across the board, whereas the rural Africans scored a high colorectal cancer risk across the board. That's gastroenterologist Dr. Alan Desmond. And this is episode 139 of The Proof Podcast. friends, welcome back. I hope you are doing well, having a nice week and keeping fit and healthy. I'm locked down here in Bondi. You may have seen that on the news. We've had a mini cluster of COVID cases here in Sydney, but really no complaints from my end. Despite the uncertainty that exists in these times, I've still got my health, my friends and my family, and that is what matters most. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I am the host of this show and by way of background, I am a nutritionist, physiotherapist and author. Just a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way before we jump into this episode on colorectal cancer. Firstly, thank you so much to everyone who has written to me about how much they are enjoying my book, The Proof is in the Plants. I appreciate hearing from you, from all of you, and a special thanks to anyone who has left a review on Amazon, Booktopia, or Goodreads. These are super, super important, particularly ahead of the book launching into new territories later in the year. On this, UK and Ireland listeners will be pleased to know the book will be officially, officially on shelf and launched into those markets September 1st. It's a similar story for the USA and Canada. The book will be on shelf in both of these countries November 1st. And with a bit of luck, I'll be in the States for that. I know some of you from the UK, Ireland, USA, and Canada have already bought the book online, but there are many who are waiting for it to be sold locally. So I am really looking forward to getting it into those people's hands. So that's all very good news. And back to my original comment around the reviews, if you have already read the book and you found it valuable, a review on Booktopia, Amazon, or Goodreads would be most appreciated. This will help people in these new countries when deciding if they are going to purchase or not. Next up, are you subscribed to my newsletter? This week, I sent out an email with 10 of my most important learnings from nutrition and environmental science. Next week, I have an email going out where I break down a recent study out of Finland looking at various dietary interventions and cholesterol levels. And the week after, a breakdown of the science on plant versus animal protein. So if you want to learn more about this stuff, 
just head to plantproof.com and sign up to the newsletter on the homepage. Thanks to plenty of feedback from the community. Going forward, I do intend to ramp up the frequency of these blogs. Okay, this episode, he's back. Who, you ask? Dr. Alan Desmond, our favorite Irish gastroenterologist. If you're a regular listener of the show, you will remember Alan from episodes 56 and 123, both worth checking out after this one if you haven't already. He is the author of The Plant-Based Diet Revolution and really just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the intersection between our lifestyle and our gut health. Today's episode is concentrated on colorectal cancer, the third most common cancer worldwide. Thankfully, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to add to that statistic. There is a great deal of science showing us what we can do to reduce our risk of developing this cancer, primarily through lifestyle modification and screening. Now, I totally get it. Some of you may be thinking, Simon, I'm 20 years old. Do I really need to listen to this? Yes, you do. Here's why. Colorectal or bowel cancer, as it's often called, doesn't just occur overnight. You can make changes to your lifestyle now. You can make changes to your lifestyle now that significantly reduce your risk of developing this cancer in years to come. Furthermore, chances are you have parents, uncles, or friends who are at an age that places them at much higher risk of experiencing this form of cancer. And here's the kicker. If detected early, the chances of long-term survival is significantly higher. So understanding this information, using it to modify your own lifestyle, and sharing it with those around you that you love is really important for our own health and for the health of our communities. Does that make sense? Good. I'm glad we're on the same page. Okay, let's dive into it. This is gastroenterologist Dr. Alan Desmond. Enjoy the episode, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. 
It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Alan, welcome back. It's uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Simon, great to join you again. And can I just say congratulations on the proof is in the plants. Huge success. It's been a big 12 months for plant-based books, certainly. And of course, yours has done incredibly well. And am I right that it's now in the United States? That's right. It launched in the US at the start of uh, May. So it's been doing great. It's really rewarding to see your book listed alongside Forks Over Knives and Dr. Greger's books and The Proof is in the Plants and the No Meat Athlete Cookbook and all these books that I've been have been go-tos for me for years now. Um, it's really, really nice. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing where you've seen your book appearing on lists next to books that you've enjoyed and read over the years. So it's, it's lovely to think that we've both now become published authors and our books are sitting on other people's shelves and inspiring them to eat more plants. So it's been great. Yeah, certainly. It's a surreal feeling and and you see the photos going on social media where people are buying all of those books that you just mentioned which is great because there is something to learn from all of them and they very much complement one another so tell me you were on the show recently how's life for you before we get into this episode give us a bit of an update well things are good here in the UK COVID restrictions are slowly lifting international travel might still be an issue. I had a bit of a false start earlier this week myself where I thought I could maybe go visit my folks back in Ireland and was getting really excited for that, but actually it's not going to happen. Um, but it'll happen in another couple of months. But life at the hospital still has challenges. You know, delivering services in the era of COVID is still tricky, but things are slowly beginning to feel a little bit less stressful and a little bit closer to normal. Certainly the death toll due to COVID-19 has become quite a bit lower, like really low in the UK right now. And it's got to the point where we're starting to plan get-togethers in the future. You remember we talked before about the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Challenge that we ran here in the southwest of England, where we got a 150 health professionals to go plant-based. Well, 
that happened just before the pandemic, but it's only now that we have actually got a date in the diary for the celebratory dinner to mark all that we achieved with that and to um, to celebrate the next steps of, of that whole program, which is a NHS free of charge, whole food plant-based diet and lifestyle program available to patients in the locality. So yeah, plans are afoot. Things are getting back to the point where we can start making plans again, which is lovely. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sure that all of those involved in that challenge will be pleased that they can connect in person and celebrate the success that it was. Now, this episode, Alan, we have decided to dedicate to colorectal cancer, a a condition that you are very experienced in managing and and dealing with many patients over your career as a gastroenterologist top line to sort of preface things before we do dive into the details. Can you talk a little bit to the prevalence and the impact of colorectal cancer and and really frame why this conversation we're having today is an important one? Yeah, of course. And thanks for putting a spotlight on this issue for a whole episode. This is going to be good to really get into the nitty gritty on this. So the colon, the large bowel, is the final part of the digestive tract, okay? It's about 150 centimeters long. It's like a long curved tube. It's roughly the shape of a big question mark inside your abdomen. And its main job, I mean, we used to think that its only job really was to absorb fluid and to make poop. And yes, it does both of those things. It absorbs a tremendous amount of fluid and it does make poop. But of course, it's also the home of the human gut microbiome. And we can talk a little bit later about why that's important in terms of colorectal cancer. But sadly, colorectal cancers, that is a cancerous growth arising in the lining of this organ, is incredibly common. It's the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women in the UK and the US. Here in the UK, colorectal cancer affects about one in 15 men and one in 18 women in their lifetime. We have about 42,000 people diagnosed each year, 16,000 people dying each year from colorectal cancer, making it our second leading cause of cancer death. So it's really important. In Australia, it's about 15,000 cases per year. In the US, about 150,000 new cases per year and 50,000 deaths. So this is a very prevalent cancer. And like any gastroenterologist, I'm very involved in the diagnosis of this condition and screening programs for this condition. So I I very often have to sit down with individuals and discuss with them that I've just diagnosed them with colorectal cancer. So that's always, always a life-changing event, you know. So let's, let's go into this diagnosis part a little bit and learn about how it is diagnosed. Before we tackle that, if you were to describe generally who tends to, to get colorectal cancer, who are we talking about here? What type of people within the population? Is this a, a type of cancer that is seen in a specific age group and perhaps more so in a specific gender? Well, it's slightly more common in males than in females. When it comes to saying what sort of person it affects, in high-income countries like the US and the UK, Simon, we're talking about one in 15 men in their lifetime. So it's pretty non-discriminatory. Although, like most cancers, the relative risk of developing this cancer increases with age. And that's always been viewed as a really important factor 
in deciding whether you should investigate someone with a change in their bowel habit or whether you should perform a colonoscopy in someone with worrying symptoms or when you should start to provide colorectal cancer screening for people who don't have any symptoms, but you just want to check to see if they have polyps or precancerous polyps. Now, when I was in medical school in the 90s, we learned that really you only start to need worrying about colorectal cancer if you have someone who has had significant tummy symptoms, such as change in bowel habit, blood or mucus in their stool, involuntary weight loss, tender mass in their tummy, etc., we were taught that you should really only need to think about colorectal cancer if someone is over the age of 55 or even before then, we were told over the age of 65, it was viewed as a disease that would begin in older age and older adulthood. And that's why when the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program began in the UK, it targeted the over 65s, now targets everybody from the age of 55. But sadly, in Europe, the US, Australia, although we've had colorectal cancer screening programs for many years, so people over the age of 55 and 65, their rates of colorectal cancer have reduced a little bit or leveled off. What we've seen is year on year, we're seeing an increasing risk of colorectal cancer in younger adults in high-income countries. So in the US right now, one in eight cases are diagnosed in a person younger than 50. So it's become a disease of early middle age. Of course, we're all familiar with Chadwick Boseman's case just last year. He died of colorectal cancer. He'd been diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer at the age of 39 and passed away three years later, age 42, I believe. But anybody who has been a practicing gastroenterologist or worked in this space over the last 10 years will know that sadly, it's no longer unusual for us to have these conversations now and make these diagnoses with people in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s. I want to dive into some of this a little bit deeper in terms of the diagnosis and screening. So would I be right in summarizing that most diagnoses would come off the back of a patient presenting with certain symptoms like you described and then having some investigations done that lead to the discovery of the cancer or the screening that you're talking about? Would that be the two main sort of uh, routes that would lead to a diagnosis? In high-income countries, because colorectal cancer is so common, we have programs like the NHS Bowel Cancer Screening Program. So when people hit the age of 55, we start sending them little poo tests to see if they've got any blood loss in their bowel. And if they've got blood loss, we will bring them in for a colonoscopy. And we remove precancerous polyps in about 40% of people who come in the door. And we find cancer in fewer than maybe 10 to 12% of people who come through the door. So that's very often how we detect precancerous polyps and bowel cancer in countries that have um, well-established screening programs, just like in the US and Australia. But we also, because we have such high rates of colorectal cancer in the UK and Ireland, etc., we have public awareness campaigns that warn people that if you see blood in your poo, or if your bowel habit becomes loose or irregular, that you ought to see your doctor and you ought to consider having either the stool sample to check for blood loss or a colonoscopy to see if you've got precancerous polyps or bowel cancer. And 
this is one of the cancers where there's a huge role for both prevention through healthy diet and lifestyle, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also early detection because it takes about 15 years or longer for the pathway from healthy bowel to precancerous polyp to cancerous polyp. So we know if we intervene with investigations early in anyone who might be at risk or have a family history or a positive poo test for blood, we can find these precancerous polyps and remove them before they turn into cancer. And because there's such a long lead-in time, it's also very much worth talking to our patients about the healthy diet and lifestyle things that they can do in their 20s, 30s, and 40s to substantially reduce their risk in later life. And early detection is so important. One of the key messages from this discussion that I would like people to take home is no matter how healthy your diet and lifestyle, if you have symptoms or if you qualify for screening, please take part because the overall five-year survival for colorectal cancer is about 63%. But if we find it at an early or localized stage, the survival rate is 90%. So early detection, prevention, these are equally important in my book. Given the importance of early detection, and I know that you ran through this just before, can you just summarize again who should be doing screening? So any person who has a significant family history, if you've had a parent or a sibling or a grandparent and another relative in your family who have been diagnosed with colorectal cancer, have a chat with your family doctor. They'll get in touch with the local screening center or a gastroenterologist who will have a look at your family story and determine if you ought to come in and have a one-off check to see if you've got any precancerous bowel polyps or they will advise you on appropriate screening for your age and family history. There are certain people, Simon, who due to the unfortunate diagnosis of a colorectal cancer in their family at an early stage may be diagnosed at being having a very strong genetic risk, such as a condition like Lynch syndrome or a familial adenomatous polyposis of the colon. Now, those very strong genetic predispositions for colorectal cancer account for about 5% of cases. But if you fall into that group, you will have a gastroenterologist and you'll be coming for colonoscopies every two to three years. Apart from that, Simon, if you are someone who has developed a change in your bowel habit for no reason, if things have gotten looser or more urgent, if you've seen blood or mucus in your poop, if you've been losing weight for no good reason, or if you have a suspicion that there's a lump or a mass in your tummy, whatever age you are, genuinely, go and have a chat with your doctor. They'll run through your symptoms, they may do some lab work, they may do a stool sample, and they can decide with you whether you need to be referred on to a gastroenterologist to have either a colonoscopy camera test to check out your enlarged bowel or what we call a virtual colonoscopy, which is a special sort of CT scan, which is designed to look at the lining of your large bowel in great detail without actually putting a camera in there. And even I just want to emphasize something here or, or just get you to clarify something for me in case I'm misunderstanding this. Even if you are otherwise healthy, you're in good health, but let's say someone listening is age 60 and hasn't done screening before, should they do screening? Yes. If you live in a country with a screening program and you are age 60, please contact your GP and say, hey, I'm 60, I'm healthy, 
I've never been invited for bowel cancer screening. Can you please hook me up with the phone number for the local screening center? So in the UK, if you're 55 years old, you should have received close to your 55th birthday, a little kit from the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program. And I don't know exactly how it works in Australia and the US, but I know bowel cancer screening programs exist in Australia and the US and elsewhere. So even in the US right now, Simon, they have just issued guidelines reducing the screening age to 45 because more younger people are getting colorectal cancer. So if you are in the US right now and you are otherwise healthy with no family history, have a chat with your family physician and ask them if you now can be referred to given the change in colorectal cancer screening guidelines. Okay, that's good. So early detection is key. Speak with your doctor uh, about getting screening if you feel it's necessary for you. Let's go a little bit deeper into... I guess the pathophysiology, what's going on in the colon as someone develops polyps and then eventually colorectal cancer. Can you, can you kind of walk us through what's happening at that cellular level? Yeah. So, I mean, any cancer is an abnormal growth in the structure of a normal organ. Okay, so if we look at a section of healthy large bowel under the microscope, we see a layer of epithelium cells. They're all lined up next to each other, nice and tight. They're stuck together. They are normal, healthy structures. What we see at the very outset, the very earliest stages of bowel cancer, is we see what we call hyperproliferative epithelium. So there's something gone wrong with the growth regulation within those cells, and they're overgrowing. They're becoming hyperproliferative. The hyperproliferative stage can then become precancerous, whereby we go from hyperplasia, which is just too much growth, to dysplasia, which is unregulated growth. And what you're seeing then is a clump of cells which is not obeying the normal rules of cell growth. It's you know gone rogue. All it's interested in is replicating and generating its own blood supply. And that is an adenoma or a dysplastic growth. And when we do a colonoscopy, we can see these. They look like little skin tags or little tiny mushrooms growing on the lining of your bowel. We call that an adenoma. And when we're doing a colonoscopy, if we see an adenoma, whatever reason we're doing a colonoscopy, we'll remove it during the procedure. We'll put a little wire around it. We'll just snip it off and take it off and send it to the lab. But with time, an adenoma can develop into an adenocarcinoma. So now we have completely dysregulated growth. We have abnormal cells, which have no beneficial function to the human body or the lining of the gut, and now have the ability to really pull in their own blood supply, to enter the bloodstream, to metastasize to other parts of the body, and that's a cancer. That's a colorectal cancer. Okay, so if it gets to that stage, that's when you're saying the five-year survival rate is around 63%, but ideally where we're picking it up far earlier and giving people a much higher chance of surviving. Absolutely. And that's why with colorectal cancer in particular, because there is such a long lead in time, we've got a huge opportunity here for early detection. Okay. So let's let's dive in a little bit more around 
what's causing this? What is causing the early stages and the development of the polyps and the change in the colon at a, at a cellular level? And perhaps to start with, what's the overall influence of lifestyle versus genetics for this particular type of cancer? Well, to be quite honest, the purely genetic cases, if there is such a thing, are fewer than 5% of cases. For the remaining of cases, about 95%, we're looking at, like for a lot of conditions that become very common in high-income countries and remain much rarer in low-income countries where they haven't westernized their diet and lifestyle, for about 90% of cases, we're looking at the complex interplay between underlying genetic risk and environmental exposures. A really good illustration of this is when we look at migration studies. So we know, for example, that in Japan in the 80s and 90s, the risk of colorectal cancer was quite low. But we saw papers published decades ago showing that when individuals moved from Japan to the US, that within years, their risk of colorectal cancer started to increase and their offspring and their grandchildren would develop the same background risk as the local population. So the diet and lifestyle have a huge role to play in colorectal cancer risk. But I thought it would be good today to like look through the things that individuals can do today because obviously you can't do much about your genetics. You can't do much about which country you've grown up in. But like so many chronic diseases, there is things you can do each day to look at reducing your personal risk. Okay, so let's explore that. And I know regularly you speak about the O'Keefe study in 2015, which gives us a little bit of an idea as to how diet is affecting our microbiome and, and possibly then our risk of colorectal cancer and other diseases, of course. And you also speak about Dennis Burkett, who quite famously had a hypothesis going all the way back to the late 1960s. Can you run through Dennis Burkett's work and also the O'Keefe study in 2015 and, and what the findings from their work really tell us about reducing our risk of colorectal cancer from a nutrition point of view? Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to talk about Dr. Dennis Burkett, of course, you know, kind of a personal professional hero of mine. So Dr. Burkett was from Ireland, but studied medicine in Dublin, I believe, in the Royal College of Physicians, then went to live and work in the UK during World War II. He was an army doctor. He was based in rural Africa. And after World War II, he returned and lived in Uganda for many years. And having worked as a surgeon in both the UK and in rural Uganda, he noticed that he wasn't seeing cases of colorectal cancer, as well as other conditions like um, obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease, etc. As he went on to expand his hypothesis. But he developed um, what became known as the fiber hypothesis or the Burkett hypothesis. And this hypothesis was that in high-income countries, we were far more likely to get colorectal cancer. And he very much focused in on the lack of dietary fiber in countries like the US and the UK as a main driver for the increased risk for colorectal cancer. And while he focused very much on the fact that fiber in your diet 
increases your stool volume and increases your stool frequency, therefore reducing transit time. So things just move through more quickly. He also recognized the potential role of animal fat and animal protein and heme iron in driving the risk of colorectal cancer. And although Dr. Burkett was working in the pre-gut microbiome era, in the late 1960s, there was some research performed in London at St. Mary's Hospital, where expanding and kind of digging a bit further into Dr. Burkett's work, they demonstrated that if you cultured the bacteria growing in stool in the UK and cultured the bacteria growing in stool in Uganda, there were statistically significant differences. So that began to unlock this whole concept that would become so so much more explored 20, 30 years later that our bacteria within our large bowel may have a role to play. So that was Dr. Burkett's theory. And, you know, he was known as Mr. Fiber or Dr. Fiber. And the Lancet Medical Journal had a big role in helping to promote the fiber hypothesis or the Burkett hypothesis, which when you look at the evidence now, Simon, absolutely played out. I mean, I sent you some information just ahead of today's conversation regarding, you know, the latest evidence on what dietary components increase or decrease our risk of colon cancer. And, you know, when we talk about the hierarchy of medical evidence, the top-notch papers that we look at are meta-analyses and systematic reviews where they go looking for the data and they go looking for the studies. And there was a recent umbrella review of about 80 different systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And that's published this year, 2020. And here we are 50 years after Dr. Burkett's research. And it shows that the Burkett hypothesis holds true. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. 
I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So then in 2015, the O'Keefe study that was performed with the rural Africans and African Americans really shed further light on this and dove a little bit deeper in terms of looking at how do different diets affect our microbiome and then perhaps set us up for increased risk of colorectal cancer. Can you run through that study in particular? Because I think it's a a fascinating study that really builds on Dennis Burkett's earlier work. Absolutely, 100%. So the title of that paper, which was published in 2014 now, is Fat, Fiber, and Cancer Risk in African Americans and Rural Africans. And it's freely available online. So if anyone's listening to the podcast right now, and later on, they want to go deep into this research, it is a really interesting and comprehensive primer on the role of diet and lifestyle in causing colorectal cancer. So Dr. O'Keefe and his team based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, were very familiar with Dr. Burkett's research. Also very aware of the different rates of colorectal cancer among African Americans and people living in rural Africa. So what they did was they recruited some healthy African American adults aged between 40 and 65, and they recruited some healthy African adults living in rural South Africa, same age group. They excluded anybody who was known to have a gut health issue or a GI issue or a familial risk uh, genetic syndrome that predisposed to colorectal cancer. And we know that among that African-American population, statistically, they've got a 1 in 15 chance of getting colorectal cancer. They're a high-risk group. But we also know statistically among those rural Africans, that colorectal cancer is almost unheard of. Fewer than five people per 100,000 population will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer any given year. So the first thing these researchers did, and God bless these uh, volunteers, because everyone had a colonoscopy, Simon. And the first basic measure of colorectal cancer risk, when they did a colonoscopy on the Americans, they found that almost half of them already had precancerous bowel polyps, which needed to be removed. When they did a colonoscopy on the rural Africans, they didn't find a single precancerous adenoma, not one. But they didn't just look and remove any polyps. 
they also performed a very detailed estimate of each volunteer's colorectal cancer risk profile. Now, they did this by measuring their mucosal proliferation rate, which is a measure of how quickly the lining of your large bowel is regenerating. We talked earlier about hyperplasia or excess growth. So it's a measure of that, the mucosal proliferation rate. You want that to be low. They measured how much short-chain fatty acids their gut microbiome was producing. They measured the prevalence of bacteria that make short-chain fatty acids, substances that reduce our risk of cancer. They measured the amount of bacteria in the gut microbiome that would process bile and turn it into secondary bile acids, which are carcinogenic. And then they measured what was the concentration of secondary bile acids in their stool. So that's a very detailed analysis of someone's colorectal cancer risk. And among the African-Americans, so in the American cohort, they scored high risk profile across the board. So everything was where you don't want it to be. However, with the Africans, they scored low risk across the board. So low mucosal proliferation rates, lots of short-chain fatty acids, lots of fermenting bacteria, low concentrations of secondary bile acids. So that's the first thing they did, which already confirms the low risk among Africans, right? Okay, sure. So they assessed all of that at baseline, and then they performed a dietary intervention. That was also very interesting, how they conducted the study and then what they went on to find. And really, the results were quite staggering in terms of how quickly the microbiome adapts. Can you speak to that? So this was the really interesting part of this study. And this is why I'm not afraid to ask my patients with a colorectal cancer risk to make some serious changes to the food they eat. So what they did with these volunteers in both groups, the American group and the African group, is they just did a diet swap. They did a food swap for two weeks to see what effect will changing food have on these individuals' colorectal cancer risk profile. So for two weeks, just two weeks, the Americans were having spinach, red pepper, onion, corn fritters, mango slices, kale salad, uh, South African potato salad. They were having veggie sausages and veggie links for two weeks. And for two weeks, the Africans adopt a standard American diet. So now these rural Africans are eating sausage and pancakes, spaghetti and meatballs, hot dogs and beans, roast beef and mashed potatoes. So the Americans were now getting 55 grams of fiber per day, just like Dr. Burke had ordered all those years ago. They were getting 70% of their calories from complex carbohydrates compared to the Africans who are now getting a standard Western 12 grams of fiber per day, half their calories from fat. And then they all went in, they had another colonoscopy, they had the gut microbiome analyzed. And in just two weeks, in just two weeks, these populations had flipped their risk profiles. So now the Americans scored a low colorectal cancer risk profile across the board, whereas the rural Africans scored a high colorectal cancer risk across the board. Now, that's a really powerful study showing what you can do in just two weeks. A remarkable effect, right? But in order to demonstrate the long-term efficacy of this, we talked earlier about 
it takes a long time for hyperplasia to become a polyp, to become a cancer. And for that reason, if you really wanted to demonstrate a dietary intervention study like this being successful, these docs would have to follow these individuals up for 30 to 35 years. So for that reason, when we are looking at individual dietary risks in a disease like colorectal cancer, we really need to turn to the highest quality epidemiological data that we can get our hands on. Okay, so in terms of the epidemiology and the broader research, what do we know about particular foods that either increase risk of colorectal cancer or decrease risk? Okay, cool. Let's go through it. So I mentioned earlier this big systematic review that was published in 2020. Now, this is looking at the the studies that have looked at food intake, different components of the diet, but also supplements and medication. But this review published by Chappell et al. in 2020 looked at colorectal cancer prevention in an average risk population. Now, before we get into this, it's important to remember that an average risk population is a relatively high-risk population internationally. So if you look at the UK, France, Ireland, the US, Australia, etc., this average risk, as we said earlier, is high. Okay, And we also know that the average risk population dietary intake is also far from ideal. So in these countries where we get a lot of colorectal cancer, we are not eating anything on average that looks like a whole food plant-based diet or the planetary health plate. Okay, So whole grains and legumes and beans and nuts and seeds barely even feature where people are eating six or seven times more red meat than is deemed even close to safe probably three times more chicken and poultry, three times more eggs, etc. Okay, so bearing that in mind, when we look at the studies about individual dietary components, there are a few dietary components that certainly seem to reduce one's risk, some that have no effect on one's risk, and some that increase one's risk. So let's go through it. Let's start with Dr. Burkett's favorite, fiber. Okay, so the data tells us that fiber consumption is beneficial. People who eat the most fiber in westernized countries reduce their personal risk of developing colorectal cancer by up to 24%. And we can talk a bit later about why that is so, but you know, more plants, more phytonutrients, more antioxidants, more short chain fatty acids, etc. Every 10 grams of whole grain fiber consumed per day may reduce your risk by 10 to 17%. Now, the, the studies tell us that dietary fiber is protective, but it's hard to define the optimal dose. And one of the reasons, of course, is the countries where these studies are performed, the average fiber intake might be as low as 10 grams per day. So you're not going to show a benefit of 50 or 60 grams per day consumption. So that's whole grains and fiber. The other dietary components that are certainly protective are fruits, vegetables, and legumes. Again, it makes sense. Fruits and veggies and legumes have a lot of healthy plant-based protein, vitamin E, vitamin B, selenium, phytates, lignans, which have all got potential anti-cancer effects. And we know that among in high-income countries, the individuals who consume the most fruits and vegetables may reduce their risk of colorectal cancer by more than half. And the dose-response curve here is really interesting, Simon, because just one 100 grams of fruits and vegetables eaten daily may reduce your risk by about 10 or 11%. So that's just half an apple a day to keep the gastroenterologist away. It's a small dose, right? And moving on to other dietary components that can reduce your risk, 
soya beans, good old soya beans. So there's been three meta-analyses in the last decade or so looking at this. Soybeans have all the benefits of the other legumes, um, plus isoflavones, which may have further anti-cancer progression initiation effects. And people who consume soybeans regularly may reduce their personal risk of colorectal cancer by up to 27%. So those are the dietary components that are definitely protective. What do you think about the evidence surrounding dairy? Because I know in the World Cancer Research Fund report, they suggest that, albeit limited, that there is some evidence to suggest that dairy consumption may reduce one's risk of colorectal cancer. And I'm sure this is a question you often get. Can you speak to this and what you think of that information firstly, and then secondly, perhaps what some of the mechanisms are believed to be at play and and whether or not ultimately you believe dairy needs to be part of a healthy diet that reduces the risk of colorectal cancer? Yeah, that's an important question, right? So the latest kind of umbrella review and meta-analysis says yes, in high-income countries, as we just discussed, where diet is not ideal, baseline, yes, dairy consumption is associated with a reduced risk of colorectal cancer. The reported benefits seem to be limited to milk consumption with no benefits from cheese consumption. And we see that, you know, 400 mils of milk per day may reduce one's risk of colorectal cancer by up to 26%. However, I've got some serious caveats here, okay? So one of the main mechanisms that we think that milk consumption reduces one's risk of colorectal cancer is because calcium in milk binds the secondary bile acids that are very prevalent in your gut and your gut microbiome will be producing a lot of if you were eating a standard Western diet. These are some of the substances that we talked about earlier in the O'Keefe paper. So secondary bile acids are manufactured by your gut microbiome when you eat a lot of fatty food, particularly meat and saturated fat. They are carcinogenic but adding calcium to your system can bind them and deactivate them and make them less carcinogenic. And we have seen other papers showing that simply getting enough calcium may be enough to reduce your colorectal cancer risk. You know, consuming more than 700 milligrams per day has previously been associated with a 35% reduction in distal colorectal cancer. So when I speak to patients about this, I mean, my approach to this in terms of colorectal cancer risk reduction, Simon, is why not up your calcium and your fiber and your legumes at the same time, get your triple hit in terms of colorectal cancer risk reduction by eating beans and greens and dates and calcium set tofu, because those foods not only are great sources of calcium, but they also tick all the other boxes for colorectal cancer risk reduction that we just mentioned. And you did mention the World Cancer Research Fund data set. And yes, I agree, in high-income countries where we don't eat a lot of beans, greens, dates, and calcium set tofu, etc., yes, the main source of dietary calcium is going to be linked to reduce risk of colorectal cancer. But I'm concerned because we know that the consumption of dairy products is strongly implicated in breast cancer, prostate cancer, endometrial, and other cancers. And in fact, a few years ago, the World Cancer Research Fund issued a pamphlet, a patient information leaflet, called How to Protect Yourself Against Bowel Cancer. And in that, they described the data on dairy and colorectal cancer. 
But they had a quote in there that said, however, because we are unsure about the effect on other cancers, we don't make any recommendations about dairy products. And you also see that in several of the papers, if you go and read the actual papers that report the reduced risk with milk consumption, they will often have a little proviso in there, um, often referring to breast cancer or prostate cancer, just saying, you know, be a little bit cautious about advising people to increase their dairy intake. Okay, well summarized. It ultimately comes back to this very, very important question in nutrition science, which is compared to what? And what you're saying here is if you're already getting adequate amount of calcium from a, a diet that's rich in plants, there's no science to suggest that the addition of dairy would offer any extra protection against colorectal cancer. Uh, certainly no science today that we have to substantiate that. What about processed and red meats in particular? In your view, is there any safe level of consumption when it comes to processed and red meats and colorectal cancer? Well, now we're on to the dietary components that increase your risk of colorectal cancer. And I've been giving a presentation at some conferences this year, and there's only two dietary components that are certainly linked to an increased risk of colorectal cancer. One is alcohol, and the other is meat. So why don't we do meat first? So Every long-term follow-up study shows us that the more meat you consume, the more likely you are to develop colorectal cancer. And we talked earlier about the protective dose-response effect. So the studies show that for every 100 grams of total meat or red meat that we consume, we can increase the risk of developing colorectal cancer by 10 to 30%. Now, on an individual basis, that might not sound like a big increase, right? But on a population basis, that's huge. So in the UK right now, we get 42,000 cases of colorectal cancer each year. And Cancer Research UK estimate that about 9,000 of those cases are caused by eating red and processed meat. Uh, the UK Biobank data supports that. In the UK right now, we consume about 76 grams of red and processed meat per person per day. It's about 25 grams processed, 50 grams unprocessed. So that's one strip of bacon per day and a little bit of red meat per day. And we think that's increasing our population's rates of colorectal cancer by 20%. The World Cancer Research Fund data is very clear that when it comes to processed meat, there is no safe level of consumption in terms of increasing your risk of colorectal cancer. It shouldn't be in there. Also, we saw the Eat Lancet Commission 2019 Processed meat, no safe level of consumption because of colorectal cancer risk. 2015, the World Health Organization told us that processed red meat is a grade one or a class one carcinogen directly responsible for causing colorectal cancer in humans. So the science is very clear on this, that we just shouldn't be eating this stuff. It, it's it's going to substantially increase our risk of colorectal cancer, even at very low levels of consumption. So having one strip of bacon might be the equivalent of having two breakfasts per week that involve bacon, right? It's a very low amount of consumption. Okay, so that's sausages and hot dogs and salami and ham and all that sort of stuff. What about your scotch fillet or steak, any type of beef or even lamb in an unprocessed form? What's your view in terms of the inclusion or exclusion of that in our diet and colorectal cancer risk? Well, I live in the UK, right? So I'm from Ireland. 
but I live in the UK. Now, in the UK, we've got the Oxford Biobank study, right? So this is a really detailed population study, basically, that's been following about half a million adults for over a decade now. And a couple of years ago, they produced data showing that, yes, I think they'd followed for this study, they'd followed about 175,000 adults, okay? So 175,000 adults for about six years. And they found that, yes, red meat is an independent risk factor of developing colorectal cancer. So it might not be as carcinogenic as processed meat, but it certainly seems to be contributing to our colorectal cancer risk here in the UK. And what's really interesting about that UK data, as I mentioned earlier, Simon, I'm Irish, I'm from Ireland. Most of the red meat that's consumed in the UK comes from Ireland. And in Ireland, there are no concentrated feedlots. All of the cows that are raised for beef in Ireland would be in the US. They would be graded as very high welfare, grass-fed, pasture-fed, not grain-fed, living outdoors, living in rolling green fields, pretty close perhaps to how cows and maybe even humans are designed to live, right? So even with that high-quality beef coming in from a country that hasn't industrialized its production of beef, we still see that eating red meat is a substantial risk factor for developing colorectal cancer. And I mean, even before we talk about the gut microbiome, we know there's so many reasons why red meat might cause colorectal cancer. It's hard to figure out which one it is, right? Is it the heme iron being directly carcinogenic to the gut lining? Is it the heterocyclic amines or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are generated when you cook meat? Uh, all of these being magnified by the nitrates and nitrites in processed meat to keep it pink. We know that all of these components individually increase inflammation and DNA damage and induce precancerous changes in the lining of the bowel. And that's even before we talk about the gut microbiome stuff. That's a very interesting point that you raise about grass-fed beef because there may be people listening thinking, well, I don't eat factory farmed meat. So that's certainly some food for thought there. Where do fish and chicken sort of sit within this conversation? Is there any evidence that shows benefit of the inclusion of fish or chicken or increased risk when it comes to colorectal cancer? Is moving from red meat to fish and chicken a good move? Is that moving in the right direction? Yes. I think whenever we're talking about making healthy changes to the diet, I know you cover this in your book very well. It's not about what are you eating, it's about what are you eating it instead of, okay? So when I speak to patients at my clinic who have had precancerous polyps or a family history, if they are willing to give up red and processed meat and become, let's say, vegan plus fish, I'm happy that this is a very positive move for them. This is going to reduce their risk. If they're happy to move to vegan plus fish with a little bit of chicken each week, if that's going to keep them on plan and on target, then that's great. If, if they're happy to have beans instead of chicken, I'm even happier, okay? Because not only do beans not increase your risk, they actively reduce your risk. So when we look at the data perhaps on chicken, it seems in general to be relatively neutral, although the Adventist health studies looking at colorectal cancer risk in vegans, vegetarians, omnivores, etc., among that low-risk population did report that white meat consumption was a risk factor for colorectal cancer among that population. 
But of course, you know, the Adventist population have a low background risk anyway. They don't eat very much meat, maybe less than 20 kilos per year compared to 100 kilos per year for the average American. And in that data set, so this is a, a population who already have a low risk of colorectal cancer because they eat a vegetarian dietary pattern. They get 30% fewer cases of colorectal cancer in the US average. But within that study, you see, yes, white meat consumption was a marker of increased risk. But in that study, we saw that the Adventists who didn't eat meat at all were 36% less likely to get colorectal cancer. But there was a signal within that paper saying that the fish consumers had an even lower risk of colorectal cancer. So that's why it's good and interesting and informative, I think, to look at the big picture data on fish consumption and colorectal cancer risk. And the latest meta-analysis or umbrella review included seven meta-analyses of observational studies performed over a decade. So we're now talking about hundreds of thousands of patients followed for decades. And the latest evidence on fish consumption and colorectal cancer risk is that the results are disparate and variable, and they don't seem to show any protective effect for consuming fish or omega-3s. But certainly fish and omega-3s don't seem to increase your risk either. So they're kind of a risk-neutral food, it would seem. Okay, there you go. That was very well summarized. Where do ultra-processed foods come into this conversation? Because you know, in the UK, I think they make up around 50% of the average person's calories. In Australia, it's about 42%. In the United States, it's even higher at nearly 60% or around that mark. Do we have any science looking at ultra-processed foods and, and how they affect the microbiome and perhaps our increasing risk of colorectal cancer? Well, honestly, I haven't seen the data strongly linking increased consumption of ultra-processed foods in high-income countries as an individual risk factor for colorectal cancer. But it makes a lot of sense that these highly processed foods can act synergistically with the other components of a standard Western diet to help produce a gut microbial environment that is conducive to chronic inflammation. So, you know, conducive to things like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease in a genetically susceptible individual or leading to colorectal cancer and precancerous changes in a genetically susceptible individual. Because if we are consuming ultra-processed foods, which contain chemicals that induce pro-inflammatory changes in our gut microbiome, actively reduce our gut intestinal lining uh, defenses, degrade the mucin layer that protects the uh, cells from being exposed directly to toxins, etc. And if we're doing that in the context of a diet that contains processed foods and red meat and animal fat, what are we feeding our gut microbes, Simon? So by the time we digest all the nutrients, our gut microbes are receiving a diet of bile acids and animal protein and hardly any fiber because we're getting all our calories from these fiber-free processed foods. And then we are feeding the bacteria that thrive in that sort of environment. These bacteria are producing the secondary bile acids and the hydrogen sulfide and hardly any short-chain fatty acids. So in the context of that standard Western diet, we're building a gut microbial environment which is contributed to by all of the above, which is now conducive to chronic inflammation and colorectal cancer with 
barrier dysfunction and inflammation and epithelial proliferation and DNA damage and genotoxicity. Whereas if we lean on whole unprocessed plants, not the processed foods, not the animal foods, not the steak, not the Aberdeen Angus steak or whatever you mentioned earlier, what are we feeding our gut microbes? Well, then our gut microbes are getting a steady supply of fiber and less protein, and they're getting plant protein, and they're getting much fewer bile acids. So now we're feeding the gut microbes that thrive in that environment. And what are the postbiotic substances that they produce? Short-chain fatty acids and vitamins and antioxidants and the secondary bile acids go down just like we saw in the O'Keefe paper. The hydrogen sulfide gas goes down just like we saw in the O'Keefe paper. And now we have a gut microbial environment that is pushing back against the standard Western diet. And it's an anti-inflammatory and anti-carcinogenic gut microbial environment, which promotes healthy metabolism and healthy homeostasis and anti-proliferation. So I think the junk foods sort of amplify the effects of the other aspects of a standard Western diet when it comes to when it comes to colorectal cancerous, but also to risk of other chronic diseases, including digestive health problems. For sure. And I think what you really emphasize there is it's not just whether a food is increasing risk in and of itself, but also considering the opportunity cost and what foods are they crowding out of the diet. And in this case, we're talking about ultra-processed foods coming at a cost of including more fiber-rich whole plant foods, which we know reduce the risk of colorectal cancer. Exactly. Less of the bad stuff, more of the good stuff. So tell me, Alan, with all of this information that we're discussing here, as a gastroenterologist who sees patients regularly uh, with polyps and colorectal cancer, how do you feel about a carnivore diet or a low-carb animal-based ketogenic diet when you see you know, people talking about these online and in podcasts? Do you feel like people are, are sort of running the gauntlet here? Well, it makes me nervous, <laughs> you know? And I mean, not just in terms of colorectal cancer risk, I mean, overall health risk. But when we talk about colorectal cancer risk, we've just gone through it, okay? The advice that I give to my patients and patients who come through my hospital who've taken part in a screening program and have been found to have precancerous polyps or been given a clean bill of health so they've got no polyps, we will send them a glossy information leaflet a few weeks later, which explains to them to minimize their intake of red and processed meat, to maximize their intake of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, to eat foods made from soybeans, to eat calcium-rich, fiber-rich foods. Now, a carnivore diet is the exact opposite of everything I just said, right? And when we look at the data, I mean, the O'Keefe paper is startling. So not only are you harnessing all the negative effects of a standard Western diet, you're kind of, you're amping them up, right? You're magnifying them. So it, it makes me worried, Simon. But although, I mean, I was saying this to someone recently, right? Although the carnivore diet advocates speak very loudly and are surely a force to be reckoned with on social media, etc. I think in 10 years as a gastroenterologist, I've met one person who was eating a carnivore diet 
That was last year. And they'd been recommended it by a holistic health professional. So that's one patient in 10 years of practice. So I think out in the real world, this just doesn't appeal to people. No, you're right. It's a very loud vocal bubble online. But I thought it'd be interesting to to get your thoughts nonetheless. Now, before we move on to other parts of one's lifestyle that can perhaps reduce their risk of colorectal cancer, because I know there is some research that's looked at overall lifestyle, you mentioned alcohol before. Can we go through that? Why does alcohol increase the risk of colorectal cancer? What's going on in the gut at a cellular level? Well, unfortunately, Simon, ethanol, alcohol is a carcinogenic substance. It induces DNA damage in the tissues that it comes into contact with. And when you drink alcohol and it enters your bloodstream, it touches a lot of tissues in your body. And the tissues that have a high baseline level of proliferation, such as female breast tissue or the lining of your digestive system, are particularly vulnerable to the DNA damage that can be imposed by consuming alcohol. So we know alcohol consumption is a risk for several cancers, including, as I mentioned earlier, breast cancer. But it's true for colorectal cancer risk as well. Even one alcoholic beverage per day may increase your personal risk by up to 13%. And heavy drinkers, individuals who have more than four alcoholic beverages per day, may increase their risk by up to 58%. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, everything we know about alcohol, sadly, is that it is a carcinogen. And for some reason in the epidemiological data, that risk factor seems to be a little bit more magnified in males than females. So how do you feel about, I guess, people often referring to the blue zones who have great health and longevity and one of the commonalities, not in all of them, but in in most of them, they do drink a little bit of alcohol on a daily basis in sort of social settings. How do you sort of reconcile that? And also, what's your advice to your patients about alcohol and, and alcohol consumption in general? Yeah, it's big picture stuff, isn't it, Simon? So Dan Butner is a big proponent of a high phenol or polyphenol containing red wine, a modest glass of this once per day. So that's a lot different to how most people approach alcohol consumption, okay? So most people aren't sitting down to have a 125 ml glass of a high quality red wine with their evening meal. A lot of the benefits coming from the red wine in blue zones may, of course, be coming from the fact that it's a plant product. It's not the ethanol. I don't think anyone is putting forward that the ethanol in the glass of wine is what's giving you the health benefits, okay? It's the phytonutrients and the antioxidants and the polyphenols. But it may well be that having that extra dose of those polyphenols and reservatrol each day helps to reduce your risk of coronary vascular disease. And ultimately, coronary vascular disease is a much more prevalent cause of uh, premature mortality and morbidity than is colorectal cancer. So if you are looking at your overall big picture health, then everything else we've discussed today regarding colorectal cancer risk is going to help reduce your risk of colorectal cancer and substantially reduce your risk of coronary vascular disease and type 2 diabetes and diverticular disease and gallstone disease and gastritis and duodenitis and obesity and type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe if you're doing all of these things and you are living the blue zones vibe, then having that nice glass of polyphenol-rich 
125 mils of red wine on a special occasion may also be a benefit. So it's everything in context. I love it. Big picture. Now, as an extension of big picture, aside from the food that we put into our mouth three plus times a day and alcohol, what other parts of our lifestyle can we look at to reduce our risk of colorectal cancer? Well, cigarettes are important. I mean, that shouldn't surprise anyone. Smokers may increase their risk of colorectal cancer by up to 25% or more. Obviously, the more you smoke, the worse news it is for you. Cigarettes containing thousands of carcinogenic substances, and it says it right on the back of the pack. Smoking causes cancer. And it's not just lung cancer, it's also colorectal cancer. So that's really important. There's plenty of studies out there as well showing that maintaining a healthy body weight may be an independent predictor of a lower risk of colorectal cancer. So that's always something to aim for. But it's very difficult in these studies to tease out whether healthy body weight itself is independent, because obviously all the dietary risks that directly increase one's risk also increase one's risk of living with overweight or obesity. On cigarettes, have you looked much into sort of the e-cigarettes and and vaping, which seems to be a trend that has taken off? Is there any research looking at vaping and, and whether that significantly reduces the risk of colorectal cancer compared to tobacco, ordinary cigarettes? A patient asked me this at clinic recently, actually, and the answer is it's too early to tell. There we go. Okay, so a little bit more research needed there to be confident with that, I guess. Now, from a practical point of view, Alan, to sort of wind this one up, if someone is listening and they're, for all intents and purposes, coming from sort of ground zero, they're adopting what we would describe as a standard Western diet. What are two simple swaps two simple food swaps that you would encourage them to look at within their diet to get them going. Okay, so the first simple swap would be swap out processed red meat for pretty much anything that isn't a cigarette. So if you eat bacon, sausages, cold cuts, salami, pepperoni, any of these foods, just swap those out for anything. Okay, and you will reduce your statistical risk of developing colorectal cancer. And the second swap I would give is swap some beans in instead of anything, because beans seem to be uniquely uh, beneficial in terms of reducing your colorectal cancer risk. They're a great source of fiber and phytonutrients. We also get a lot of phytates in our beans which may be part of their cancer-preventing magic. Phytates help to, they seem to act on the gut lining to specifically reduce colorectal cancer risk. They also seem to have a role in deactivating harmful heme iron. So yeah, swap out bacon for anything and swap beans in anywhere you can. There you go. You heard that from Dr. Alan Desmond, doctor's orders there. And I'll add on legumes, there are so many, so you can really get quite creative with them and, and each offers something unique, tofu, tempeh, chickpeas, lentils, lots of different types of lentils, and then all of the different beans. So there's a lot to explore there. Now, Alan, one thing that I want to finish on here is if someone has been diagnosed with colorectal cancer, does any of this advice change? 
with regards to the dietary pattern that you would like them to follow? Is there anything more specific? Do we have any science looking at populations who have been diagnosed with colorectal cancer and different dietary interventions and how patients have fared? Yeah, with colorectal cancer and cancer in general, the American Cancer Society have some very helpful documents and some very helpful guidelines around healthy diet and lifestyle during colon cancer survivorship. This is incredibly important. I think if you are someone who had a screening detected early colorectal cancer and it's been dealt with, and you are one of these individuals who has a 90% chance of being clear of this cancer, and your oncologist has told you that you're clear and you've been given the green light, then everything we spoke about today is incredibly important. And every person who's been treated for colorectal cancer or had a precancerous adenoma removed from their bowel or have a family history or have a genetic syndrome that significantly increases their risk, they should all be given the information and made aware of all this information on reducing the risk. When we look at people, Simon, who've been diagnosed with a more advanced cancer, there is some encouraging data out there. The American Cancer Society advises individuals who are living with a cancer diagnosis to engage in regular physical activity, to avoid alcohol and cigarettes, to eat a plant-rich diet. They talk about eating the rainbow of a variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds. And they also counsel people to avoid eating red and processed meat if they've been diagnosed with a cancer. Now, there was a paper published in 2018 looking specifically at stage three colorectal cancer, the stage that I believe Mr. Chadwick Boseman sadly passed away from. And among individuals who had high adherence to the ACS guidelines, the five-year survival was actually 81% versus individuals who had low adherence to the ACS guidelines, among whom survival at five years was 65%, which is statistically where you would expect five-year survival to be for stage three cancer. But of course, Simon, living with a new diagnosis of colorectal cancer is a really difficult time for anybody. It's a very stressful time. They may have significant symptoms. They may be undergoing surgery. They may be having chemotherapy, etc. So making healthy diet and lifestyle changes can be challenging. But thankfully, organizations like the American Cancer Society are giving people this information and helping to support them in making these healthy changes, even if they are living in a period of cancer survivorship. Okay, great. Is there anything, Alan, before we wind up that you feel we haven't covered that you'd like to add? Well, just, Simon, that yes, colorectal cancer is very prevalent in high-income countries. It's still a far less prevalent in lower-income countries. We talked about all that evidence. It's important to remember that most cases of colorectal cancer are sporadic due to the complex interplay between environmental factors, including food, alcohol, and cigarettes, and genetic susceptibility. So there is so much we can do to reduce our risk. A healthy plant-based diet and lifestyle is a wonderful seatbelt that you can wear every day to reduce your risk of serious or adverse outcomes. But of course, low risk is not no risk. If you have symptoms, get checked. If you live in a country with a colorectal cancer screening program, take part. Great. And if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about how to put that seatbelt on, 
please do grab a copy of Alan's book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. Thank you, Alan, for joining us again. I've lost track of how many times it's been now on the show, but it's always super interesting. And you know, a lot of this information we covered today can be life-saving. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on here to educate the plant-proof community. And as always, my friend, you are welcome back on any time. Thanks, Simon. It's always a pleasure, man. I can't wait till the day when we can do this in person again. Sooner the better. There we go. I trust that took your understanding of colorectal cancer to a whole new level. The major take-home messages for me are, number one, if we want to reduce our risk of colorectal cancer, it helps to eat a high-fiber, plant-rich diet. A high-fiber, plant-rich diet. And number two is that early detection. Early detection is key. As Alan said, the age for screening varies a little by country. My advice is if you're not certain, to check with your GP to see if that age is 45, 50, or 60, etc. The standard recommendation is once eligible to perform this test every two years. Now, it's also worth noting if you have a family history of colorectal cancer, have had colorectal polyps, have inflammatory bowel disease, or have a genetic syndrome such as FAP or Lynch syndrome, the CDC recommend getting tested before the age of 45 and possibly more frequently than the standard every two-year recommendation for everyone else. All clear on that? Beautiful. Friends, this is really, really serious stuff. I want every single person listening to share this to at least two loved ones, be it friends, colleagues, family members, etc. At least two loved ones. You never know. It may just inspire someone to go and get screened, who then discovers they have polyps, which can be removed before progressing to cancer. In short, you may save their life. So please take a moment to do that when this episode finishes. I'll be sending it straight to my brother, my parents, and my best mates. That's for sure. Okay, that's all from me. If you did find this episode interesting, please let Alan and I know your thoughts on the socials. The more awareness about colorectal cancer, the merrier. Alan is most active on Instagram. You can find him at Desmond. And you and I have probably connected by now. But if not, I'm at plant underscore proof. All right, time to officially land this plane. I look forward to meeting you all back here in just a few days for another Wednesday Wisdoms episode. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants. And don't forget that screening too. <laughs>